Uh, Please remain standing as you take out a copy of God's Word. And turn with me, if you will, to uh, Luke chapter 7. We're going to read verse 36 through the end of the chapter. Uh, If you're using one of the church Bibles, you'll find that on page 864. Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. Beloved congregation, uh, this is our God's word to us this morning. Uh, Let us listen with all our attention. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, Weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and of what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the large debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears, and has wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Ascends the reading of God's word. Let us ask his blessing on our time in his word this morning. O Father, the heavens declare your glory, and the sky proclaims your handiwork. Every day they pour out speech, and every night they give knowledge. But your scriptures are perfect. They revive the soul. They make the simple wise. Your your commands, your precepts are right. They make the heart glad. They, They enlighten the eyes. And so your word, your scriptures are to be desired more than gold. And so may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. For you are our Lord, our rock, and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. If you walked into a room and you noticed two people, one of whom was well put put together and dignified, and the other was a weepy mess, who would you be more likely to go and talk to? Or if you read a story or you watch a movie 
And there are two characters. One, a well-educated, hard-working member of society, and the other is a loose cannon, down-and-out person who constantly struggles and alienates everyone. With which one would you identify? I can tell you my answer to both of those questions. I'd be drawn to the successful person. I might even silently pass judgment on the other. And my Lord weeps. Because I have a view of myself that's based upon comparing our earthly successes with each other and trying to find a better status, a better stature. And maybe it's just wishful thinking. Maybe really all it is is, is I want others to think that I'm successful and put together and have things figured out. But whatever the reason is, all it means is that I'm self-deceived. That I fail to look at God and His perfections and His holiness and His beauty and judge myself in light of that. Because if I did, if I truly understood God's perfection and I evaluated myself in light of that, I wouldn't see success in my life. I'd have zero opportunities for pride. I'd see hurting people, and I'd quickly run to them because all I'd see is common ground. I'd recognize myself in them. And yet that's not how we typically think. We have all sorts of ways of classifying people. We, we apply labels to people as if they can be reduced down to one word. And, and Christians, we're not immune from this. We even do it to ourselves. We label ourselves. I'm an Arminian. I'm a Calvinist. Or, or we get more subtle. Uh, I'm not into theology. I'm all about love. Or, on the other side, I'm not one of those wishy-washy Christians. I know what I believe. Or, I take holiness seriously. And we could go on and on and keep going. We identify things that we think are important. We surround ourselves with others who think the same way. And then we judge anyone who's different. But what does God say? Does he say, this is the first and great commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart or all of your mind or all of your life. Pick one. Has he said that that some of us are knowledge Christians and some of us are, are love Christians? Or has he said, if I have all prophetic power and understand all mysteries and have all knowledge and I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. The letters to the seven churches in in uh, Revelation 2 and 3 um, are are chiefly addressing the problem of focusing on knowledge or love, one or the other, and not holding those together in balance. On one extreme, you have Pergamum and Laodicea who claim to be all about love but put up with all sorts of heresy and sin. He says, if you're not not telling your brothers how they need to grow, you're not loving them. 
And then on the other side is Ephesus and Sardis, and they're careful to guard their theology, but they've forgotten their first love. And he says, what benefit is, is if you know these things, but you don't love the God who said them? And that theme in those letters echoes the Old Testament. Isaiah, the prophet, famously proclaimed God's judgment. These people draw near with their mouth and they honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. That was chapter 29 of Isaiah. And and Isaiah then picks up uh, 20-something chapters later in Isaiah 52. He picks up that theme again. And in Isaiah 52, God calls his people to wake up because they've been lulled into a dangerous slumber. They'd grown cold in their love for God. And so he allowed them to be conquered and captured and taken away into captivity. But he tells them not all hope is lost. Isaiah 52 goes on and God proclaims that his people would once again know him. So great would that day be that the very feet of the one to proclaim it would be counted as beautiful. The message is so beautiful that the feet of the messenger are glorious as they bring this good news because he would announce peace. He would announce hope. He would announce that the Lord had returned to Israel and to his people and that he would draw the hearts of his people back to himself. Because that's what pleases God. Hearts that love him and delight in him. There's so many things that we think impress God and they don't. And we need to get back to the basics. We need to tear away all the distractions and make it simple and clear. And that's what our passage this morning does for us. It lays this truth before us in the plainest of terms. And really, as we look at this passage, there's there's one thing I want to drive home this morning. It's this. Jesus delights in hearts that love him and others because those hearts reflect his own. Jesus delights in hearts that love him and love others because those hearts and that love reflect his own heart and his own love. That's really what we want to see as we open up the scriptures this morning. There's this Pharisee, his name is Simon. This is not Simon Peter. And he has invited Jesus to come and eat with him. And I think we need to be careful because we've been trained to read our Bibles as if the Pharisees are always the villains. And everybody just looks at them and says, ooh, Pharisee. And that's not it. They, they were not considered the villains in Israel. Quite the opposite. They were well-trained in theology. They knew their scriptures forward and backwards. Uh, if you had a Bible question, the Pharisees were the ones to go ask. They were respectable members of the church. They were reverent. Their lives were well-ordered. They were neat and they were tidy. And they were the model that everyone aspired to follow. And so when Jesus came onto the scene, the Pharisees believed that they were the gatekeepers. They were the ones that stood between the people and between danger. And they believed it was their duty, therefore, to examine Jesus, get to know him, and see if he was safe or dangerous. Simply put, they saw themselves as the standard, and they wanted to see if Jesus measured up. 
They definitely didn't see Jesus as being above them. He was either below them or at most equal, and it was time to evaluate and find out. So uh, he invites Jesus over. But this is also what leads to a constant state of shock by the Pharisees when Jesus constantly behaves differently than they do. How could someone claim to love the truth and not live the way they do? Not make the same judgments they make? And we see this tension almost immediately in our passage because while they're eating at Simon's house, a less than savory woman comes into the house. She's called a sinner. She's called a woman of the city, perhaps a euphemism for a prostitute. Whatever her particular sins are, they're well known. Her reputation precedes her. She was the kind of woman that respectable company avoided. And everyone knew that. Well, apparently everyone except Jesus, because she makes a beeline for him, and he does nothing. She approaches him. And he lets her. He lets her touch him. And he does nothing. And Simon says to himself, so much for being a prophet. If he knew who she was, what what kind of woman she is, he'd have nothing to do with her. Because if, if Jesus did know, certainly he would treat her the way Simon does. How could Jesus know what Simon knows and not behave as Simon behaves? So what did she do that was so scandalous? She came into the house carrying an expensive flask of ointment. But what's most notable about her is that she's crying. She's weeping. Broken over her sins, she can't stop sobbing. She didn't believe herself worthy of looking him in the face, and so we're told she stood behind him. Refuses to stand before him as his equal. She sat there, weeping. Her tears pouring forth, and they began to to wet his feet. Not skipping a beat, she begins to wash his feet. Literally, she bathed his feet in in tears. Then looking around for for something to, to dry his feet, she finds no towel, and so she uses her own hair to wipe the mud from his feet. I'm sure you've heard before how gross feet became in the ancient world. Sandals without socks, which is probably the way it should be. Walking everywhere in a world without pavement. The feet would become caked with dust and and then the sweat would turn that dust to mud. They stank. His feet literally need to be washed. This isn't symbolic. They're a stinky, muddy mess. And that job of washing feet was so gross that it was often delegated to servants or slaves. And yet this woman doesn't just wash his feet, she uses her own hair to wipe that mud from them. How would you respond if someone said, let me wipe my muddy feet on your hair? 
Of course. Why? And would you ever freely offer to do it? And yet here's this sinful woman doing it voluntarily. What could drive someone to do that? She saw something in Jesus that was different. She saw something in him that was beautiful. In him she saw hope for sinners like her. In him she saw the possibility of peace with the God against whom she had sinned. In him she saw everything Isaiah had foretold in chapter 52. Hope, salvation, mercy, reconciliation, restoration, forgiveness... God himself returning to his people. How those words from Isaiah must have flooded to her mind. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation. His feet, his feet, those those beautiful feet, and yet caked with mud. She must do something. She must wash those beautiful feet for they carried the messenger of life and hope. They they bring the herald of salvation. They bring God back to his people. What drove her? To bathe his feet in her tears? She recognized him. More than that, she loved him. She may have been a sinner, but she loved him. And that's exactly what mattered. Jesus knew what Simon's thinking. Regardless of what Simon thought, Jesus was a prophet and he knew what was going on. And so he proceeds to tell a parable. There is the moneylender. There's two debtors. One owns a modest debt, the other ten times that much. But neither of the debtors are able to pay what they owe. And so the lender takes pity on both of them and cancels both of their debts. Everybody's tracking up to this point. We get it, okay. 50, 500, forgiven, okay. But here comes the point. Jesus asks, who will love the money lender more? And immediately the point's clear. But that's not good enough. It's not a rhetorical question. Jesus is waiting for the answer. He's staring at Simon. And now, before everyone, Simon has to answer Jesus. You have to love the word suppose. Well, I guess, maybe, I suppose, the one forgiven more. But there's no suppose about it. Everyone knows the answer. Obviously, the one forgiven more. But Simon just doesn't like being called out in public. And perhaps he doesn't like being called out because he too knows the words of Isaiah. He knows the great indictment in Israel is that they are a people who honor God with their lips and yet their hearts are far from him. It's not hard to decipher the parable. Simon is the one with the smaller debt and this woman is the one with the large debt. Well, sort of. Jesus isn't actually suggesting that the woman is is really, in God's eyes, a worse sinner than Simon. That's not the point. He's dealing with perceptions. Because in Simon's eyes, 
the woman is a great sinner and Simon is a good person who occasionally makes a misstep. Simon's already said it, hasn't he? She's that kind of woman. I can label her in one word, sinner. It defines her, but he's different. He's the kind of person that God would naturally associate with. If he has a debt, surely it's small. And so Simon's gratitude is as small as his perception of his debt. He invited Jesus to his house, but for whom did he think that was an honor? Simon was a Pharisee, a gatekeeper. He was respected. The fact that he gave Jesus his valuable time in his mind was a kindness. And so when Jesus entered his house, he was afforded none of the honors that an important guest would be afforded. If Jesus had been an important guest, a servant would have washed his feet. He would at least be given water. He would have been kissed on the cheeks, the customary greeting. He he would have been given oil for his head. But Jesus says, you did none of this for me. Yes, you honor me with your lips, but where is your heart, Simon? Where is the smallest hint of love in the way you've treated me? Beloved, we have to let this sink in. This is the danger of Reformed churches. We're good at knowledge. We're well taught. And it's easy. It's so easy to think, I've got it together God must be so proud of me. He's lucky to have me on his team. And Jesus weeps. Because what Jesus desires is a heart that loves him. Yes, he desires truth. Truth married to love. If you have all knowledge but you have not love, you're a clashing cymbal and a clanging gong. If you give everything you have to the poor but have no love, you gain nothing. That's what impresses Jesus about this woman. It's her profuse love. She bathed his feet in her tears. She wiped the mud off with her hair. And then she repeatedly kissed the feet. And then covered them in ointment. Only one thing could drive her to behave in such a way. She loved him. She loved him because she understood the gravity of her sin and what was being forgiven. She had no delusion that she was acceptable in his eyes. When when he declared her sin forgiven, she knew what that meant. And she loved him for it. My problem when I read a passage like this is I think, wow, Jesus can love a sinner like that? And the second I think that I've distanced myself from her, I've chosen instead to identify with Simon rather than the woman. And I've missed it. And my Lord weeps. Because that woman is me. God's holding up a mirror so that I can see what I'm truly like. I'm not supposed to to pity her. I'm supposed to admire her. 
her honesty, her humility, her love. I'm supposed to see that if there's hope for her, there's hope for me. That's what this passage is about. That's what Jesus desires for me. And why does he desire this for me? Why is this so important to Jesus that I be defined by love? Well, I think to ask the question is to answer it. It's because he's defined by love. Jesus delights in hearts that love him because they reflect his own heart. The last few verses of Isaiah 52, the passage I opened up reflecting upon, help us uh, to know exactly what that means. Uh, it says in, in, in verse 12 that when God returns to his people, that he will stand behind them. And then verse 15, he will wash them. And it's in that context that Isaiah delivers one of his most famous prophecies. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. Beloved, our problem isn't dirt on our feet. It's sin in our hearts. And our uncleanness is not something that soap can remove. The only thing that can wipe out the debt we owe, the only thing that can wash away sin's stain, is if someone who had no sin of his own would come and give his life in our place. He'd have to wash us in his own blood. He would have to give his life in place of ours. And so so the night before our Lord was crucified, wishing to show his disciples what he was about to do for them on the cross, he got down on his hands and knees and he washed their feet. And in tears, he went to the cross to cleanse them from their sins. He was beaten beyond human recognition. And he bathed us in his blood and tears. And only one thing could drive him to behave in such a way. He loved us. He loved us and he understood the gravity of our sin and what needed to be forgiven. He had no delusion that there was any other way. When he talked about forgiveness, he knew exactly what it would cost. And so when this woman in love knelt down behind him and washed his feet, she was reflecting his own love back to him. His love transformed her. She was loving as she had been loved. Love begets love for God and for others. And that's why when Jesus washed his disciples' feet, do you remember what he turned? He says, I do this as an example for you that you might wash one another's feet, that you might love one another, forgive one another, show mercy to one another, kindness to one another. You see, the problem with Simon wasn't just that he didn't honor Jesus, it's that he didn't honor this woman when she came into his house. Because if Simon loved God, he would have honored this woman and he would have washed her feet. 
Because that's what the love of God does to us. That love is seen somewhere else. That night that Jesus washed his disciples' feet, he, he also shared bread and wine with them. And these two were pictures of his love, pictures of his body and blood about to be given in death for their forgiveness. They show us not just how Jesus has loved us, but also how we are called to love God and to love one another. So beloved, let us learn to weep over our sin. Let us see just how great a debt has been forgiven. And let us love God and each other because we have been forgiven much. I'd like to ask the elders and Pastor Brian to come forward that we may receive the Lord's Supper this morning. Please bow with me in prayer. Father, we thank you for your love. You do not judge as man judges. That you draw near to the hurting and the sinful those who can't bear to look you in the eye, and you show them mercy. Teach us to see ourselves as you see us, to recognize our sin and our need, and to see your love and forgiveness. Help us to love as we have been loved, to love you, to love others. All of this we ask through him who loved us, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.